welcome to the Make an Adjustment Podcast. I'm excited that you're here to join us today. We have a special guest. This is exciting for me and this podcast because she has graciously decided to join us and share her story. Amanda Pooley is our special guest today. Amanda is a human trafficking expert, trainer, and consultant. She has a special story as previous as a previous victim and turned her life around. She's happily married and continues to share her faith and her story to others. Uh, She travels around helping others help themselves, and she has proof that no matter what your past is, you can overcome and succeed by making adjustments. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I am so happy that you're here today. I heard you speak at the Light the Way conference here in Dallas, um, and you and your husband had the, what is it? It's a Same Roots, Different Branch, right? That was the title? Same Roots, Different Leaves. Cool. Leaves. Okay. I was very excited. Um, and I was truly moved by your story. And um, I reached out to see if you would be willing to share that with me on my podcast, and you have been so generous and so kind in regards to that. Um, so I last week I shared my experience um, in a cult, growing up in a cult, and this week we get to hear your story about it being in a cult, being trafficked, and the success that's come after that. So why don't you start off by sharing your story, and we'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, so... Um... My story is definitely not the easiest one to listen to, so I always kind of give a little bit of a trigger warning ahead of time just, you know, um, in case someone is listening to it who, um, if you feel the need to turn it off or take a break, um, I, you know, totally understand that and encourage people to take care of themselves as they listen. Um, But I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, um, not too far away from the Philly area. And um, from one perspective, my life seemed pretty normal. Um, I grew up with a family that was very highly respected in our area. Um, We were part of a local church. My grandparents were um, very well regarded within the church and leaders. Um, They um were well known within the community everybody knew and loved them um they had a little bit of a unique background so you know when people struggled with certain things my grandparents were the one who counseled them and so um the main difference on that side of the coin that you would see is that i lived with my grandparents and my mom and my sister Um, But outside of that, there wasn't anything like glaringly wrong with our family. We seemed pretty normal. I (laughs) played soccer. I played volleyball. I had a job from the time I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old and um, loved working and um, rode motorcycle with my grandpa, learned to hunt and fish and, you know, was kind of that tomboy. Um, But if you flip the coin over, my life told a very different story. my parents divorced. Um, I um, was still pretty much, I was under three when they divorced and my grandma or my mom did with my grandparents. Um, my little sister basically was born um, when my dad came back to ask for a divorce. Um, and my mom thought he was returning home. Right. And so, um, you know, Obviously, that was kind of a traumatizing scenario for my mother, um, thinking that he was coming home and finding out that he was actually looking for a divorce. Um, And so in our house, we had an open door policy, so everybody was welcome. And literally, I would get home from school every day and ask, who's here? How long are they staying? Do I share my bed or not? (laughs) I had like this little bed that I made up. Um, we had a very small house and, um, upstairs was, it was kind of like an angled roof. And so it was really meant to be an attic. And, um, my mom, my sister and I slept up there and there was this cross space. And so I would make a 
a bed in the crawl space closet area and sleep in there just to kind of get away from people. Right. Um, you know, and the other reason I would sleep in there is my uncle lived in our basement and he would come home drunk or high. And I could tell by the way he walked up the driveway, which drugs he had been doing. Wow. Um, and so we learned really quick, like there were some nights we needed to hide other nights. It, he was going to be completely hilarious. And we should go down and talk to him while he was drunk and hear all the funny stories. Um, you know, so, um, him and his brother didn't get along. And so there was a lot of fights that would break out at my house. The police were at our house quite often. Um, but everybody just kind of ignored all of those things. Um, because our house had such an open door policy, people lived in our house off and on my whole entire life. Um, one of those people was a uncle of mine who ended up sexually abusing me for most of my childhood. Um, I finally ended up breaking my silence and telling a friend of mine about that. And, um, you know, when I told her, I didn't really understand that I was disclosing abuse. Um, we were playing truth or dare and I just thought I was answering a question um, because I thought what was happening to me was completely normal. And right. part of the reason I thought it was normal was because of the church-like cult that I grew up in. Um, so the church that I grew up in from the outside looked like a normal church, but when you dug deeper, it followed IBLP's practices. And that, and the, um, so tell, tell, for people who don't know, tell what IBLP is. Yeah. IBLP follows Bill Gothard's principles, um, and um, the documentary uh, Shiny Happy People is a great place to learn more about what they stand for. Uh, um, funny because I brought up that exact uh, one last week in my episode where <laughs> episode two was like my life. Like I felt like it was right? talking about my story. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like... Yeah, I think that episode as well hit me, you know, like a ton of bricks. I actually right. pulled my husband in and I watched this. And he, and he said, wait, this is, he's like, I, I believed you and I believed your story, but like, this is real? Like, and it's way bigger than I thought. Like, I can't believe this is real. <laughs> I agree. My husband did the same thing. Um, and I do have one more question. Do you, how old were you during the abuse with your uncle? Um, it started when I was in about second grade, and the last time he tried to rape me when I was was when I was in um, about I want to say about seventh, sixth or seventh grade. Okay. Um. Yeah, and so, that was uh, you. You you made the outcry to, uh, accidentally was when you were around six right. or seventh grade. <laughs> right. Very, very much accidentally. Um, you know, you'll understand this. I mean, we were taught that um, the father or the, man, the men in our life were in charge of us. Right. They were the heads of everything, and you did what the men tell you to do. Um, my uncle used that very much to keep me under control. Um, he said that, you know, this is what daddies do to their daughters and you don't have a dad. Um, and so you, it is my role to be over you as if I was your dad. And so it was my understanding that every other dad was doing this to their daughter. And on the flip side, you know, I was also in growing up in purity culture, um, being taught that, you know, if you had done anything, if you kissed a boy, if you held the boy's hand, if you, you know, God forbid, if you had sex with a boy, <laughs> right? Um, you were really going to hell. And so um, there was that, there was no, I, I never remember there ever being any talk about abuse. And that abuse is different than um, choosing to have sex with someone or um, choosing to kiss a boy or, you know, there was, there was no distinction ever made because if, um, 
because they didn't believe in a victim. Like when you really dig into what they believe, it was very much, um, well, what did you wear? Oh, right. You know, you know, even when I went to college, I remember I went to a college thinking I was getting away from all of those principles and ended up having a professor who very much believed in IBLP principles. And um, we had to write a paper on something close and dear to our heart. So I wrote it on sexual abuse. And his question to me in the paper was, well, what were you wearing when you were sexually abused? And I said, did you hear how young I was? (laughs) And he goes, it doesn't matter if you caused him to stumble, it's your fault. Uh, And that's such a horrible placing the blame on the victim mentality to to grow up with. I, I agree with that completely. Right. You know, and this was a guy who, um, I, I'm not going to name drop, but if I did within certain circles, he would be very well known and he would be, um, because he's trained many people to be pastors within that religious denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very well respected. Um, and I was floored. You know, after that, I ended up leaving that college because I was like, I can't stand for that type of victim blaming. Agreed. Um, So that really, that mentality and that church-like cult is really what set me up as a child, like, to believe that everything was my fault. And really, I believed that this was my lot in life, that this is what God created me for, was to be abused and to, I didn't even acknowledge it as abuse. Um, I just thought, well, this is just what happens to girls. Um, so when my friend had asked me this question in the truth or dare, and it was something silly, like, um, have you ever kissed a boy or something like that? I just answered it honestly, thinking like it was no big deal. And her mom ended up, her her mom was a state trooper, uh, which was very rare. Well, it, it was also very rare that women within this church would work, right? Right. Um, Most of them were stay-at-home moms, but she was uh, a state trooper. And so when she went home and told her mom that I had said I had kissed and that I had used my uncle's name, um, her mom was very upset and um, went back and started having conversations and it got reported. Um, And then I ended up going into talking to the state police they had me actually call my uncle where while they fed me questions um to ask him and got him to admit to it over the phone um which honestly was almost more traumatizing than um the actual rapes themselves um as well as having to testify in court against him right um you know right before going actually while i was on the stand um, my attorney had to pull me off the stand and educate me on terminology. Oh. Um, because I don't know about you, but I wasn't taught proper terminology about body parts. Right. Um, and when you testify in court, you have to use proper terminology. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So, I, you know, so he had to pull me off the stand and educate me. And then he put me back on the stand and, you know, my pastor sitting right there. And I thought, well... This kind of seals the deal. I'm definitely not getting into heaven after this. Um, You know, I'm definitely blacklisted. Um, And um, so went through that court case. um, Was, I think, around eighth grade by the time all of that, you know, the court case happened and all of that. And um, around that same time is when this guy started coming to our church um, when I knew I was going to court, I had sent a letter to my dad and told him that I wanted him to come be with me during court. Um, I was already in the middle of a severe anorexic, um, about with anorexia. Um, I was somewhat struggling with suicidal ideation already. Um, I literally felt like there was that I was worthless, that um, my, I was tearing my family apart um, because of how my family was responding to all of this. And so 
And again, nobody was saying, Amanda, this isn't your fault, right? Right. I was still hearing purity culture every Sunday at church. You know, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And if you do this, you know, they're standing there with the rose petals pulling out, you know, see, you're worthless. Um, and, and so, um, it was a very challenging time. Well, my dad never showed up. Um, and that was devastating to me because I really, my whole entire life, I just wanted my daddy to come back. Right. Um, and this guy, uh, was a friend of one of the girls in the youth group that, um, I really was very fun loving. And because of all the trauma in my life, I was constantly like very serious, very, um, introverted, um, very awkward around people. And, um, I, I just wanted to be like this other girl. And so, you know, I'm singing in choir one day and I noticed this guy sitting with her, which, you know, in our church, for a guy to be sitting next to a girl and being friendly with them, you're always like, who are they? And how are, are they related? Are they betrothed? Like, are they <laughs> right. like, but they're touching each other. Why are they touching each other? Like, <laughs> it's a big deal that they touch, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> and so, um... I, you know, inquired and found out it was actually her brother. And I'm like, oh, that makes more sense. Okay. Um, and he ended up being um, a youth leader in our church. And over time, he approached my mom about being a big brother for me um, because he said it was really awkward around the guys. Well, duh, that kind of made sense after everything I had just been through. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. And so he... Um, really that grooming process started of him building relationship with me. Um, I found out a few months in, he was actually already betrothed to a girl who was younger than me at our church. Um, but he, um, asked me before I knew that if we could start dating and he wanted to keep it a secret because he was a youth leader in our church. Well, I'd been holding my family secrets for years. I'd been holding secrets of abuse for years to me it was no big deal that a man would be asking me to keep a secret right right uh you know and he was not only a man he was also an authority figure as in he was a youth leader in my church right right so now he was up by god to help lead our youth group and so in that iblp world that meant something and um so I, um, of course I was like, of course, you know, yeah, I'll be your girlfriend. And after I agreed to that, um, the abuse really started. He, um, re required that I skip school one day and took me to a hotel and raped me for the first time. Um, and from there it became, um, he became very controlling about knowing where my whereabouts were constantly. Um, I had to check in with him all the time. He changed the way that I was dressing. So, of course, you know, um, I grew up very conservative in how I was allowed to dress. You know, you couldn't really show your collarbone. Everything had to be pretty much down to your ankles. Right. You weren't allowed to wear nail polish, especially if it was red. Um, you know, uh, just all kinds of silly things and um he was pushing those boundaries as far as he could without it becoming overtly it, he was pushing them so i would get in trouble within the community that i was in but somebody from the outside would be like oh you're starting to look more normal oh, right right and he was isolating you from the people that you thought you knew Right, right, absolutely. And so, um, through the course of all of that, um, he consistently was raping me and every time would tell me, I'm teaching you what to do with other men. And that was really, con I had no framework for that. I didn't know what he meant by that. Uh, um, it got to the point where um, the physical abuse was getting really bad and I was having bruises um, in the middle part of my body where my clothes could hide it. And he um, 
I was at a youth group event. It was just all girls at the church. And um, I thought no one else was in the room. I went to change really fast, thinking nobody would see me. And um, one of the girls from my youth group was in the room. Excuse me. And she um, saw the bruises and grabbed my cell phone and just started dialing a number on my cell phone. Well, he was the first number. And she just said, help, and hung up. Oh, well, he knew, of course, where I was because I had to check in with him constantly. And he drove a truck that everybody in the church knew what it, who it was. And so he pulled into the parking lot and this girl lived right across the street. So she runs over to her house and tells her mom something's not right. Um, that, you know, he would be the first person in my phone and that he would show up like that. You know, so, of course, I run out and tell him to leave. Um, and you know, she's running across the street to her mom right? to tell her not right. So they pull us in and start asking questions. And he says that I was really hot and he slipped up and yeah, we had sex, but you know, it was obviously consensual is how he's portraying it. Um, but you know, it was my fault. And so we were required to stand up in front of the church and they embraced him because he was a man and he was just tempted above what he was able to handle. And I was kicked out of the church. That's horrible. Um, Not to mention he was 28 and I was 16. So, you know, if we want to look at it from a legal perspective, there's some issues there as well. Right. Um, And um, once I, right after I got kicked out, I found out I was pregnant. Um, and he ended up, long story short, he ended up beating me until I lost the baby, um, to which I was completely devastated and tried to commit suicide. Um, my mom had me admitted to a hospital for a hold, but felt like she didn't know what to do with me. Um, during the course of all of this, um, my dad had moved back to the area. Oh. And um, when things started coming out with the church about what was going on, I had found out my dad moved back to the area and I started reaching out to him. And so he invited me to come up to his house. And so I thought, well, if I tell him about this guy, he'll help me. Mm-hmm. So he actually invited me to bring the guy, um, bring this youth leader, um, you know, he was my pimp. Then I would have referred to him as my boyfriend. Right. Um, but was uh, a pimp for me and uh, or to me. And um, he invited me to bring him with. And while I was there that first time, he um, made it very clear to me that they knew each other. And very much um, expected that the abuse would continue. Um, and so, so basically, to the point where, like, re-traumatized. you've been re-traumatized all over again because you thought your dad would be the one that saved you. Hello? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you there? Yep. Okay. I said that basically your dad, like, re-traumatized you all over again yeah i mean he had a whole room prepared you know for us to go to so that this guy could rape me um you know and um so the reason that's important to know is that when um i was released from the hospital this youth leader had gotten permission from my mom to pick me up from the hospital and to take me to my dad's house (sighs) Um, and so I show up there and, um, this youth leader who was my first pimp, um, my dad is my second pimp. Um, they together rape me and inform me of the rules of being held at this trailer. And, um, I was held there and was told I couldn't go outside. I couldn't, um, there you know if anybody gave me money it was theirs that I had to do whatever I was asked to do um and so I was there um 
for quite a while. Um, you know, timelines with trauma are a little tricky to be very specific about. Right. Um, but I was there for a while. Um, I was completely hopeless and pretty much lost all will to live or fight. Um, they sold me under the guise of being a good church girl. Um, so I wasn't allowed to use, you know, drugs or alcohol or anything like that. Um, and which is, came out of the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's so interesting because, you know, I, I'm a social worker and I, I deal a lot with sex traffickers and, um, girls who've been sex trafficked actually. And drugs seem to be such a major part. I've actually never heard of someone not being drugged during this process. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, I work in the same field as, as well. And I've had quite a lot of, um, pimps who will drop their girls off at rehab to sober them up (laughs) to allow them to be able to make more money. Um, you know, so if they're sober enough, then they can make more money than if they're just strung out too much. Right. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I have not met very many of us who were not allowed to use substances. Um, and so for me, it was difficult Um, to say the word because I had nothing to numb. Right. But I also look back and I think it was a blessing because I didn't have that barrier to overcome either. Right. Okay. Um, I had plenty to overcome. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great positive spin. (laughs) Right. Uh, So, yeah. I mean, you got to look for the positive somewhere, right? Exactly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, though, you know, everybody always wants to know, how did you get out? So um, I guess we'll jump there just to kind of keep the story brief. He, you know, I was completely hopeless, really felt like there was nothing worth living for. And um, like I said, I wasn't allowed to go outside. Um, but my pimp was standing outside. My dad was in the back room. And, uh, he all of a sudden called me outside and I smart mouthed him, which was the first time I had done that in a very long time. So of course he, you know, smacks me around for smart mouthing him. And he tells me to go outside and he's standing out there drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette. And all I could think is that's what I want. Like, I've got to figure out a way to get it. So I try to grab it out of his hand I went for the beer and tried to get it grab it out of his hand almost get it up to my mouth and he smacks it out of my hand oh wow and the same thing with the cigarette and he sticks his finger in my face and he said my girl my good girls don't do that Hmm. and I remember thinking what are you talking about you've taken everything good away from me I'm not a good girl anymore right you know and I don't know about you, but growing up, like being a good girl, a good Christian girl was like the epitome of everything I strive to be. Yes. Yes. You know, and and that was kind of like the culture of the cult, right? Right. Here's your checklist. And this is how you know you hit it is when you're barefoot, pregnant, missive enough. And you're not having any bad things happen in your life because God wouldn't allow bad things to happen to you if you're submitting to your authority enough. Right. Right. Yes. You know. And <laughs> and so I just remember thinking, like, all you've taken everything good away from me. What are you talking about? And he told me, go back inside. I'll be back in 10 minutes, which I knew that meant he was going to go get another buyer. Right. And... I briefly remember looking and seeing my car because my car had been there the whole time. (laughs) But it's like my brain didn't even know that, right? Because I was so beaten down and so abused and manipulated and just physically even beaten. Um, 
And so, and plus they had taken my keys and my phone from me. And so I walked back inside and I remember seeing it out of the corner of my eye, seeing my car there. And I walked in and on the table, my cell phone and my car keys were sitting right there. And literally as clear as day, I heard a voice, which I believe was God, right? that said, go run now. You're my good girl and I love you. Yeah. (laughs) And I grabbed my car keys and I ran. And um, actually, a couple weeks ago, my husband and I did like an exploration trip where we went back to the places where all of this abuse had happened. And we found, we went back to this trailer park. And I have always remembered that there was this pavilion there. And I remember getting to the pavilion and just being terrified. Like, what if he comes in? There's only one way in, one way out. And going back there in logical brain, I'm like, oh, this isn't as scary as I thought it was, you know? Um, But when I hit that pavilion in my car, I was driving this, like, maroon blazer. And um, in my car, there was a tape. Yes, I'm not old. Um, there was a tape in the tape player that a friend had made for me and it had four songs on it. Um, and they were a lot of like, um, casting crowns and, um, Phillips Craig and Dean songs, Okay, which we weren't really listening to. We got in trouble for that, but you know, we kind of snuck some Phillips Craig and Dean and casting crown. And the first song that popped on was when God ran. And if you've never heard the song, I mean, it just talks about, it's basically the song of the prodigal son. And um, the only time I ever saw God run is when he ran for for me. Um, When he took me in his arms, held my head to his chest and said, my son's come home again. That's fantastic. And it really just talks about the love of God. And I just sobbed. And so it was just this crazy, crazy experience. And I remember thinking like, okay, how do I even get home from here? You know, we didn't have GPS on our phones at that point. Right. Um, no, I barely had a cell phone. Like I was just, we were just to that point in life where we we're just getting cell phones, but we still had like to count the minutes, you know? Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I didn't have GPS on my phone or anything like that. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, where's the highway? And going back and seeing it in logical brain, I'm like, oh, you can see the highway from here. You know, but when you're so, like, traumatized and scared, you, you're you not thinking that way. Exactly. Um, and so it was very powerful to go back to those places and be able to take that power back and have those moments and show those places to my husband a few weeks ago. Um especially you know we sat in the in that same spot and listened to that song and just thank god that even though i was so angry with him and so much didn't understand what was going on and where he was that he never stopped pursuing me and he never stopped showing me that what i was taught about god was completely wrong right you know and that he kept he kept pursuing me to the point that I knew whatever I was being told, I had to completely tear that that whole building, that whole construction of everything um, had to be torn down and the foundation had to be tore out and I had to rebuild everything and right. go, okay, what is truth? And, and that's, that's, uh, I talked about that myself a little bit last week and I, I agree with that. You have to tear it all out and start over and study for yourself and ask questions for yourself and, and stuff. And, and that was one of my questions to you is you had that moment where you heard that song and, and you realized that it wasn't God, God didn't betray you in some way. And you manage to keep your faith intact. And I think that is huge considering everything that you grew up in and in the name of God, like in the name of God, you know, 
And so that that that's an amazing moment. And and so you had that moment. Did you ever have a time where you questioned your faith or did you? <laughs> I think I had many times. I mean, <laughs> I have so many times. Um, I really have three moments that have been one of them being the time with that song that I've already shared. Um, one being from the time I was a really young child, um, I would run into the woods behind the house I grew up in and just want to be alone. And Jesus would literally show up and play with me in the woods. Oh, neat. And um, I remember like saying that to somebody one time and then getting so mad at me and me learning really quick that you couldn't talk about Jesus that way in the church that I grew up in, that they didn't believe that that was actually God. They actually thought I was crazy. Right. And, um, but that encounter with him, I think is the real reason that I still believe in God because he came to me and built relationship with me before the trauma got bad. That's amazing. And I still held to that. Like, that was always my question. Like, my whole life was, but it doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't make any sense with what I know of him playing in the woods with me. Um, and then I had that moment in the car. And then a few years later, when I was doing some trauma work, um, I had someone in a therapy session with me. Had um, She had me go back and ask God where he was during some of my abuse oh wow and asking god that question and sitting with him during that was extremely powerful um and i think his answer is probably unique to all of us so i know everybody's always like well tell me what what he said to you <laughs> and i'm like uh, I'm not going to like yeah and it's not because I, I i'm not willing to it's because i think we cling on to what other people say and we want those answers for us. And I think sometimes his answer is unique to us um, because I know his answer, my very close friends that we've all had that experience and been had that bravery to ask that question to God. We all have a very unique answer to it. Um, and so you know on platforms like this i'm very hesitant to put it out there um because i want people to go and be encouraged to have that have the courage to just go ask god themselves and sit with him because he is willing to tell you where he was um but i think the thing in general um that really helped me not turn my back on God was when I started understanding his love for me and also that he didn't do any of those things to me right and he didn't just turn a blind eye to it um there's um when I learned about this and when God started showing me about the concept of that we are born into a world at war, and John Eldridge really talks about this um, a lot, um, how we're born into a world at war. And, you know, there's the enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Right. And there's Jesus who's love and light and peace and all of those things right and the enemy is the one who's causing all of the destruction in this world right right you know and that whole concept changed everything for me and i think sometimes well-meaning i think sometimes well-meaning christians um will say things like well, Jesus let you go through that so you can help other people. And I think that's complete. I'm trying to use nice words. Um, <laughs> uh, 
It's complete bogus crap. <laughs> um, that's as nice as I can get. Um, because he, that's not the father's heart. Right. You know, um, he's, no, that's not true. Um, I, I, I just don't think that's my dad's heart towards me. I agree. And I think when you really dig into and you learn to have that relationship with, with the father and with Jesus and with Holy Spirit, you, you start seeing their heart in a different way. And you understand that, wait a second, no, that's the enemy coming to kill, kill, steal, and destroy. That's not the father. Right. I agree with that 100%. And I also remember thinking that, you know, no, I mean, God was there but he also got me through it like i i was able to come through on the other side of this and be able to share a story or whatever that you know he didn't let me go through it so i could help people but he got me through it where i could still have my faith intact and and then now years and years later i have decided to share that story you know Right. Um, so I, I think that that's part of it as well. But you're right. I think it's very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Personal to each person, their trauma and how they get through it and, and what they decide to do with that on the other side. Do you focus back on God or do you blame God? And it's been an experience for me and it sounds like for you as well to really break down and st- and get to know God all over again. I yeah, I mean, I think in our, I think in our Christian culture, we're scared to be angry at God. Right. Like, God's big enough; He can handle my anger. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've thrown a literally thrown a temper tantrum, and sat my butt in a chair and said, "Okay, Jesus, you're going to answer this question for me, and I'm not getting up until you do." <laughs> right. Well. Like, what kind of two-year-old do I think I am? You know, like, <laughs> I I literally think he's, like, sitting there or, you know, wherever he is going, huh, she is, what a cute little, you know, daughter I have down there <laughs> who thinks that I'm not listening to her. I've been listening to her this whole time. <laughs> Let me go remind her I'm sitting right there and I got this. You know, like, yeah. and he always, like, every single time I throw that temper tantrum and I'm like, but I need an answer right now. <laughs> you know, every single time he does something that reminds me, hey, I'm I'm right here. Right. Like, you know, I haven't left. And all of that, I, he can handle our anger. He can handle our sarcasm. He can handle our fear our shame our uh, all of it you know the biggest thing is are we willing to take it to him exactly and and you know I was actually my before we got on today I was doing my own daily bible study and and that's what was actually said to me today was that he wants to hear you vent he doesn't want to hear like the gushy like you know pre-done prayers he wants he wants you to vent sometimes he wants you to go with them with everything that you have in your day and sometimes that's not all good yeah (laughs) i think jesus i mean and he's you know i think he understands all of us like i mean he knows i'm not all that holy yet and the f word still comes out of my mouth and (laughs) i think he laughs with me you know, and I think sometimes he goes, yep, that's the only thing that can explain how bad that situation is. <laughs> you know, when you when you work in our field and you see some of the crap that we see. Right. You know, there's some days that there's no other word for it. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm not saying that everybody else has to feel that way. I'm just saying, I think my father loves me for who I am. And that I am his beloved daughter no matter what. There's nothing I can do that can change his love for me. Exactly. Absolutely nothing. 
there is no sin that I can commit that is going to separate me from his love. That's exactly right. And I think that if we fully understand what we say we believe about what he did on the cross and we grasp his love for us, it would change everything. Agreed. Agreed. 100%. That would, it would make your, everyone's life better, especially in this day and age where things are, seem to be in a perpetual state of chaos anyway. Um, so yes, I agree with that. Um, I do have one question for you. Um, and it kind of, it kind of goes back to your childhood. When I saw you at the conference, you talked about the need to be perfect or the expectation that you needed to be perfect. Do you think that expectation, uh, made you more susceptible to the life that happened to you when you were younger? Um, I think it definitely created one of the many vulnerabilities that I had. For sure. Uh, the need, yeah, the need to be perfect um, definitely played a part in it. Um, I don't know if I would say it was the main mm -hmm. vulnerability necessarily um but it definitely contributed to it so I mean the need to be perfect contributed to the anorexia um that I struggled with for probably 13 years of my life um the need to be perfect played into um how hard it was to get out of religious abuse right um how hard it was to leave a um a previous domestic violence marriage um you know so i was married i know you met my husband but i was married before him and i was married for 13 years and in a domestic violence relationship and that need to be perfect. And even the religious beliefs around divorce and all of that, that kind of carried over from my upbringing and childhood, uh, made it really hard to leave. Um, the, I think that perfection developed like this need to, um, almost put on, I don't want to call it a personality, but like a poser. Right. Like, yeah, I have to almost pretend that I'm something that I'm not. Yeah. Because if you really knew who I was, you would reject me and you would hate me because I'm never good enough. Which, if we go back to what the core beliefs of an addict are, or that's really what those core beliefs are, is that, you know, I'm I'm a bad, unworthy person. And if you knew me, you would reject me. And, and that's a that's a great powerful way to explain it because in fact it it actually sets very put it in words right and I think you just sort of did in a sense because I had the same thing I was always told I was perfect therefore I thought I had to be perfect and when if they found out I wasn't then they weren't gonna love me anymore right and and stuff so I I that was something else that really like sat with me when you were talking and and stuff and I I was just curious what your perspective but I'm so glad I asked because it is you did put into words what it feels like like that and and how it leads to not a negative life like I always tell my kids that they're not perfect and it's okay because I don't ever want to put them in a position where they have to feel like they are right right <laughs> So yeah, so that's great. So um, my my kind of sort of last question for you is, tell me a little bit how you continue now to help others and what your business is, and and if people ha are in a situation that they need to reach out, a place that they can reach out for these types of situations. Yeah. So um, I about two years ago um, started a 
or um, consulting business with my husband. Um, it's called Pulley Consulting. Um, you can find us online at www.pulley-consulting.com. Um, and we do consulting uh, for organizations um, who are working in anti-trafficking. We also have a 40-hour certification course if you want to learn to uh, with victim survivors um, as an advocate. Um, this is for individuals who are working for an agency who's working with. Um, so they're looking for that professional certification to be an advocate. Um, we also do um, speaking engagements, keynotes, uh, um, training courses. We've got a whole, all kinds of different things that we do. Um, and then um, when, you know, I do some, I do still provide services for um, survivors, but usually that comes through the consulting work that I do with agencies at this point. Um, and then locally in my own community. Um, but um, yeah, that's a little bit about who we are and what we do. We are definitely open to talking to anybody um, at any time. And we um, I think we're on Facebook and I think Instagram. My husband's really the one who does all of our web designs. So I just still talk to the people. Uh, I, I love it because you do that. You guys do have a great like shared story. Um, and uh, I think that if people are interested in that, there's there's I think there's clips on your website of some of the stuff that covers both of you. Right. Um, yes. And he's he has his own amazing story as well. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe in the future we could add that to our mix and have another episode together. Um, but oh, he would love that. Uh, I, I would love that too. He's he he seemed like a genuinely nice person uh, at the conference, and and I'm I'm so amazed by both your stories and how that all works. So yes, I would definitely love that in the future. And I can't, I just, I really can't thank you enough for this time that you've given us and this opportunity for this very small podcast. <laughs> well, I'm proud of you and going after your dream and starting a podcast. I think, you know, it it takes courage to do, to make our dreams happen. And, and so any time I can encourage somebody who's starting something new and um, stepping out and taking that, those first steps, I'm all in. So I'm proud of you and um, I'm grateful that you shared your story with me and that we get to be survivors together, making a difference in this world. Uh, I love it. They, yes, yes, most definitely. And thank you very much. And should you need anything from me, I'm always here as a representative for you in Texas. All right. Sounds great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Amanda. You have a great weekend.